I looked at my daughter and realized that there was only really one option. And I wanted to make sure that she knew what a strong woman looked like and how we were gonna get through this with our faith and with our family. I had found out that my husband had committed suicide on January 22nd. The night before we had been looking for him, he just wasn't acting like himself. So in that moment, I just felt like the rug had kind of been taken out from under me. I felt like we had this life that we had created together and I wasn't sure what was gonna happen. I wasn't sure what the next day was gonna look like. In that moment when you're told what you've lost, I just looked around and the room was full. It was full of love still. My parents were there, my aunt and uncle were there, my closest friends were there, Pastor Jeff was there. That's how God revealed himself to me. He was like, look around at these blessings that you still have. Throughout all of this, I've always wanted Maeve to know that she's loved. And that that will never, ever change. Even though something was taken from us, she's still loved by, by God, most importantly. I think a lot of times people say that they understand, but there's like moments in the day where you just can't pick up and call somebody. When Maeve was doing this funny dance in the kitchen, I couldn't send a video to my husband. So it's like parts of your day that just become kind of lonely. It's those little moments that become difficult. When I had taken some time off of work after all of this, I tried to work more with Radical Love, which is a ministry that helps with refugee families and seniors in our community. and. I think that helping people was a good way to channel that energy and to not feel so lonely. If I could give something to someone, then it made me not feel so empty. With Radical Love, there's a lot of families that are coming from very tragic situations. So I do feel like a connection to that. I just think about some of the things that these people have gone through and have overcome, and it gives me strength. Community's always been very important to me. I don't think I leaned on my community. I was more of the helper. And the tables really turned this last year. And I needed the help. And I needed the support and the love and the friendship. I was given that back tenfold than what I've ever given anyone. I don't know how I would have done anything without leaning on God or the community. It's amazing the people that God puts in your life to move you forward on your path. When we share our stories with each other and just live in community with people that are very different from us but are still a lot of the same. We're all mothers, we're all fathers. 
We all live in an Instagram society where everything is photo touched and airbrushed and everything looks perfect, right? And life is not like that. Life is very messy. And I think the more that we talk about it, it normalizes that and makes it okay. It's not easy to share the most difficult part of my life. Grief is interesting because you never get over it. You move through it. I don't know how people grieve without God. I can't imagine not having God during something like this. I don't, I don't even know what that would look like. Some of you know Abby and you know her story and you know Maeve, her daughter, and, and, um, and some of you were a part of the community that surround her in the, in the midst of exceedingly difficult times. And I really appreciate her willingness to share her story and to help us experience again, when we get it right, when the church is at its best, when we're doing the things that we do and we walk with each other and even just her heart there to say like, and the, we live in this Instagram world, and when we kind of open ourselves up to reality and the brokenness of those experiences, there's a lot of, there's a lot of power in there. And so just hearing her story uh, this morning and um, also recognizing that last phrase, she said, I don't know how somebody grieves without God. And I'm like, man, that is so, it is so true. And so I just, um, one, I'm grateful uh, for you. I'm grateful for this community. I'm grateful for the way that you are generous with your time and your energy and your resources to help ministries around here um, happen, uh, create opportunities for us to be together. But I'm also grateful that we can share our stories with each other in, in really um, celebratory times and in really difficult times. So um, thanks for being a part of, of this community. How many of you all here would kind of like consider yourself like a, a, a foodie or a chef, like you enjoy cooking? Like you sort of, okay, like I am, uh, that's probably not so much me. I, I, can, I can whip out a, a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese when I need to or some, some of the basics, and, but I'm, I'm more of like a grilling kind of guy. That's what I enjoy. But Sherry, uh, my wife, um, does most of the cooking in our house and I see her do this thing sometimes when she is like working on a meal and putting something together and she'll take like a spoon and she'll dip it in like the sauce or, or whatever and taste it and then start adding like a little bit more salt or a little bit more pepper to like round out the flavor. Sometimes she'll, she'll give it to me and kind of be like, uh, what do you think? Which my answer in that moment is always like, I think it's perfect. Like it's like, um, if you don't know that, that that's supposed to be the answer, then um, I've got a marriage class I would like to sign you up for to get. And, and, and we understand that, right? We, we understand this idea, if I can bring all the kind of like right ingredients together, if I can blend them in such a perfect way, right, then I'll get this, this ideal bite. I'll, get, I'll arrive at the right thing. But contrast that with to the experience of where you you have kind of that perfect bite, that perfect taste in like a singular ingredient, where all on its own, you need to add nothing to it. 
Like it, it's it, the roundness of the flavor, the, the crispness. I always think like in my mind, I go to like that, that perfectly ripe honey crisp apple when we go apple picking in the fall. And you take a bite and you think to yourself, this needs nothing else. Like this is perfect in and of itself. Today we're beginning a, a series on Paul's letter to the Colossians where, as we'll discover as we kind of open up this letter together, there seems to be um, some cultural pressure that the church in Colossae is facing, uh, where they're um, tempted, kind of pressured to perhaps concoct kind of this spirituality that involves a variety of different ingredients, where if we put all the right things together, like to add to the gospel that that was pre, uh, preached to the church in the town of Colossae in order to truly experience the fullness of God, right? If you're really going to plumb the depths uh, and experience the fullness of God, like what else do you need to add to it? So in response, Paul writes a letter to this church that I would argue, I would contend, is perhaps the most singularly focused letter of Paul's in the entire New Testament. Right. To, to remind this gathering of, of apprentices of Jesus living in Colossae that what their faith is, what they have placed their faith in, that for them, for everyone, it's all about Jesus. He is the singular ingredient that lacks nothing. He needs nothing added to him in order to experience the fullness of God because, as we'll see Paul make the case, he is the fullness of God. So sometimes, like, if you've been around the church for a while or something like that, you'll, you'll hear us jokingly say that Jesus is the correct answer to every question asked in Sunday school, right? Like, that's the Sunday school answer. Paul kind of supports that right here. Like, the book of Colossians, is, it's, he's saying this is, it's all about Jesus. Now, last week, if, if you were here with us, we were celebrating the resurrection together. We were, we were um, gathering to worship on Easter, and I made the comment just kind of as people were leaving at the benediction, like if you're sitting there this morning wondering what does a, a resurrected Jesus have to do with my life some 2,000 years after the fact, like this is perfect timing because that's exactly what Paul wants to help form and shape in us. That's what he wants us to understand in this letter that he writes to the church, to these Colossians. And so he says to them again in, in chapter one, he says the entire church is centered for, for those in Colossians as well as for us on the one who is the firstborn from among the dead so that we might come to have, so that he might come to have first place in everything. That's so as I think about our kind of effort to dive into this letter together, that's really my prayer, is that as we see Paul's soaring vision of Jesus, is that, that he might come to have first place in everything. Like here collectively as a community, as we gather to worship and pray and open up his word that Jesus might have first place among everything, but, but, but in my home, in your home, in my neighborhood, in my kids sports teams or my workplace or wherever it is I go that Jesus might have first place in everything and so uh, as I begin this series as we begin this together I want to add my encouragement 
um, to, to, I did this in the Genesis series too. I want to encourage you to bring a physical Bible with you because we're going to be camping out in this letter over the next couple weeks. Maybe bring a journal along with it. But in my heart and mind, I think there is a, uh, there's value in us experiencing this. And it could be totally just me. I could be projecting this on you. And the, the text will be on the screen as always. But for me, when I'm thinking about this kind of holistically, it helps to see it in the context of a letter that Paul is writing, which in that church, they would have heard this read uh, to them in one seating, like sat down, hey, we got a letter from Paul, read it to the church, probably read it multiple times out loud them. Our experience is going to be a little bit different. We're going to kind of work through this slowly over the next several weeks together. But let me, let me uh, extend the bring your Bible challenge to you once again and um, encourage you to do that. I, by the way, I read from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, but if that's not what you have, that's totally okay. If you have ESV or NIV or NASB or anything like that, NLT, bring it, um, and we're going to be pouring over Colossians over these next few weeks. All right, let me pray for us, and we're going to dive into the text. Father, meet us in your words today. Open them up to us. Lord, open up our hearts to receive from you this morning as we dive in and look at what Paul's word to the Colossians was, Lord, what your Holy Spirit inspired, and, and help us to consider the implications here and now for us. Give us this soaring vision of Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ and Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So let me just pause real quick right there. I know sometimes it's easy to kind of like read right past these introductions, but it does strike me that when Paul writes this, he says, to the saints in Christ at Colossae. So when he, he thinks identity and then location, right? In fact, that phrase in Christ, we'll talk more about that, but that is Paul's most common reference for followers of Jesus, for Christians, for we talk about being an apprentice of Jesus. Those have placed their faith in Jesus. The moniker that he uses to describe that are those who are in christ that's their identity their location happens to be Colossae, this this town in in southeast turkey right modern day turkey um and i i do think that's instructive for us when we think about how how god views us we it's our identity is those who are in christ that if we've placed our faith in him and and we're trying to live this out here you know those in Christ gathering at Mill Creek. Okay, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You've already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It's bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You've learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on, on, on your behalf and he's told us about your love in the Spirit. So let's pause there for a second. Paul's letter uh, 
to the Colossians, he, he begins by just celebrating and recognizing, hey, this is a community that has been saved by the truth of the gospel. A community saved by the truth of, of the gospel. In fact, look at that description in, in the middle of verse 5 and verse 6. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. So he, he just recognizes and acknowledges this identity that they have in Christ, the impact of the gospel in them. I was thinking just this week as I was preparing for this message, I was reflecting on the process of, of launching the Mill Creek campus some five and a half years ago. And some of you, you sitting in this room, you were a part of that launch team. You were a part of the group of people that gathered together to prepare and think and and one of the things that we began to recognize that was really important was this sense of kind of the priesthood of all believers, of being this in together, this shared commonness that we had around the truth of the gospel in this. And one of the most meaningful experiences that, that I had in that process um, of, of us preparing to launch, and by the way, if you, weren't, if you weren't a part of the launch team, one, I'm super glad that you're here. You are part of this now. But two is I really, I really pushed that team out of their comfort zone. And like we like washed each other's feet. Like we, it was like, so you might be glad you joined kind of like after the, <laughs> the fact. But we had this moment where at the end of one of our training times, we were going to come to the Lord's table together. We were celebrating communion. And, and instead of the, the methodology that we had oftentimes used it, we used been using here recently where people would come down to the table and take the elements and go back to their seat and receive them um, in, in kind of their own sort of space. We did something where we had like three tables like this set up and, um, and, and we invited people to come to the table. And so Sherry and I were standing at the table and the first couple that came up, we took the bread and the cup and we offered it to them and said, hey, this is, this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Jesus. And they received it. And then we went and sat down and then they came behind the table. And the next couple came up and family and whatever. And, and they guided them in receiving. And, I, and again, some people had never been asked to guide somebody or, or you know, I said, hey, if all you can do is just say bread or cup, like it's okay, like just... And then at the end, um, Ed and Donna Elfman uh, were behind the table, and Sherry and I came to the table, and they, they served us the bread and the cup. And it was this really unifying experience about what Jesus had done in us. And that's where Paul starts this letter. It's interesting to note here that, that Paul had never personally been to the city of Colossae. It's, it's not a group of people that Paul knows. Unlike the other letters that Paul writes, his epistles, where the churches were the result of, of his missionary journeys, where he had been with them when the gospel took root. Right? There's no record in Acts or anywhere else of Paul being in Colossae. So this is likely a second-generation church. Epaphras heard the story of Jesus somewhere in his life. Some speculate that, that he had been in Ephesus with with Paul and with Timothy. He hears the message and he returns to Colossae and he begins to tell the people there about what Jesus has done and, and who he is and what he's accomplished on their behalf. And there's others that begin to place their faith in Jesus and now they're gathering to worship and to learn and grow and they're, they're seeking to live out this kingdom vision. 
Like they're, they're praying like, like we pray, like, your, your will be done on earth as it is in Colossae, you know, like, or, or on Colossae as it is in heaven. Like, do this thing here in, in our, our little part of, of the world. Epaphras now has traveled to Rome to visit with Paul while he is in prison, and when he's there, he's telling them the story of what God has done in their city and in their church what he's doing among the people. In fact, in Philemon, Epaphras is referred to as a fellow prisoner in Christ. So I don't, we don't exactly know if that means he's been placed under arrest as well, or if Epaphras has been living with, with Paul and, and enduring with him. But he's a real partner in the gospel, and so he begins to say, this is what God is doing in our midst. And there's really encouraging things to report. If you look at, at verse 4, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. We, we hear how much you love God. We hear how much you love each other. He talks about how the gospel is bearing fruit, how it's growing all over the world just as it has among you. As we, as we read this, and it's kind of uh, good timing for us, there's this echo here, right, of Genesis chapter 1 that we studied a few weeks ago, where, where God speaks to his creation. He gives them this command of being fruitful and multiplying. And now we hear this story of how the gospel, how salvation by grace, where God is doing this divinely intended work of recreation. N.C. Wright in his commentary on Colossians says this. He said, God is doing through the gospel what he, what he always intended to do. He's sowing good seed in the world and preparing to reap a harvest of human lives recreated to reflect his glory. This is that community, this recreated community to reflect his glory. Pastor Brian, uh, if you've been around Chapel Street for a while, you, you've heard Pastor Brian say it is the nature of the gospel to grow. And before I, I, I move on here, I want to just take a moment to define what I mean when I talk about the gospel or we talk about good news. Because that's sometimes, depending on your level of familiarity, if you're new to the church, sometimes, honestly, if we've been around the church for a while, like terminology just becomes kind of like something that we hear without really fully understanding what we're talking about. We get real pictures of this, right? When Paul's writing to the church in verse 6, he's talking about this idea of truly appreciating God's grace. When I talk about the gospel or, or when you hear us refer to it as the church where we're talking about that hope that we have in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of salvation that he accomplished in his death and resurrection. It's where we've placed our faith. So for us, this idea of being a community of people who are in Christ we're saying we've placed our faith in Jesus and his resurrection for his ultimate victory over sin and death. It's the message that Jesus proclaimed to his disciples. It's a shared conviction for all who are in Christ all over the world. The, the Orthodox Church today, the Eastern Orthodox Church, gathers to celebrate their Easter, claiming the same truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. If you have been around here, and, and you've ever heard the idea of, of what we're trying to do, of why we gather as this sense of 
of trying to live better lives or be better people so somehow we can make ourselves uh, approachable to God. Like I have, if that's what you've received, I have horribly miscommunicated and please forgive me because that is not the heart of our message and that is not who we are. Christ does this. We are this new people because we have life in Christ, because of what Jesus has done. Nothing that we are claiming or adding to some resume in order to impress God. And then we're seeking to live, right, as apprentices or or disciples of Jesus in the way of Jesus as a result of that. And imperfectly so, right? If, If you're here this morning and you're wondering if your own story of brokenness, like, fits in welcome like you are among messed up people like you are going to fit in swimmingly here and the gospel is for you right and it it rests it was accomplished entirely by jesus it's the foundation of the church and it's foundational to the letter that paul is writing here so if there's ever any question that you have about that always know that that I would love to talk with you um, or any of our staff leaders. We would, we would be happy to, uh, to, to talk or discuss or grab a cup of coffee. All right, let's, let's continue on. First, he talks about them being a community that's saved by the gospel. And then he starts to pray that they would be a community growing in the life of the gospel. A community growing in the life of the gospel. Paul now begins to tell them his prayer for the church. This is verse 9 now. Paul writes, for this reason, since we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge uh, of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Let's pause there for a second. Now, just, just for a reference point, like, Verses 3 through verse 14 in the Greek is one continuous sentence. Like, most likely when Paul was writing this letter, he was dictating it, and there's typically would be like a scribe who's recording it. And just imagine for a moment being that man or woman, right? He's like just praying for like a comma or something to give him like a moment to pause and rest your hand for a second. This, uh, in 2012, I don't know if you've ever seen this, like, in 2012 in San Diego, they were doing their fireworks display and something malfunctioned and the entire 20-minute fireworks show went off in less than 30 seconds. Th- 7,000 individual fireworks all fired at the same time. I was just, 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 you just see people like running for their, like getting out of there. Like this is the, uh, the theological equivalent of the San Diego fireworks show from 2012. Paul's just this giving us statement after statement of meaning and purpose. And I want to just, I want to highlight a couple things that, I, that Paul's praying here for the church as we think about this. And before I do this, look at verse 9 again. This is important. He says, for this reason also. So Paul's what he's about to pray, and he does so with confidence. Again, he's saying, because of what God has already done in you, among you, I am praying in confidence that he will do these, these other things. And then he begins to define that. He says that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. 
So what does that mean? Like, uh, if you're like me, oftentimes when I think about the will of God, I start to think about his desire for the details of my life, like where I'm going to live or where I was going to go to school or who I was going to marry or, or all of these kind of things. And those are important things. I'm not diminishing that, but I don't think that's what Paul's actually getting at here. I, I think what Paul wants us to understand is particularly in context here, where he's writing to this church that, that seems to be facing some kind of temptation, some sort of pressure from, from culture around them to, to add to the gospel, to add some, Jesus and, right? And, and whatever that was, whether it was kind of the Gnostic idea of there's this deeper spirituality, and, and if you remove kind of the material things, like almost like the spiritual elitism kind of idea that you can really begin to have or understand or experience the fullness of God. Right? But Paul's not talking about unlocking the mysteries of the universe or unlocking the mysteries of yourself. Right? For Paul, understanding God's will involves recognizing how Christ is the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes. How God's salvation is open to all people. In other words, to know the fullness of God, you need to know Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of God's will. And Paul states this for himself in other letters. He'll talk in Philippians about, I want to know, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. To the Corinthians, I want to know Christ and Christ crucified. Everything is centered on knowing Jesus. And he continues, look in verse 10, praying. He says, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the, the knowledge of God. You may walk worthy of the Lord. And again, it, it's important here that we root this in what Christ has already done. Right? When we think of walking worthy of the Lord, particularly when we see that phrase, fully pleasing to him, our humanness begins to misconstrue this idea that to, to walk in a manner worthy of him or walking in a way that is fully pleasing to him is what makes us worthy of him. But that flips the narrative, right? Plus it's impossible unless there's somebody who's achieved perfection in here, right? That's, we know firsthand that that's not possible. Paul's point is that it's because of Jesus and because what he's done for us because when we place our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, then because of Jesus, we are fully pleasing to him. So Paul's prayer is that we would live according to what is already true. That our lives would reflect the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We don't live in order to, to be worthy or live in a manner worthy in order to be pleasing to God. We are pleasing to God in Christ. Paul says, so live like it. Right? We live from it, not for it. And that, that makes all the difference for us as followers of Jesus. Then finally, Paul, to this, this prayer that he offers, he wants to strengthen them by the power of the gospel. Let's continue in verse 11. Verse 11, he says this, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. 
He's rescued you from the dominion of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Like you, you hear, again, this is all one cohesive sentence in Paul's writing. It's just this firework after firework of this is who Jesus is. This is what it means to be in Christ. And this is where I, I want to land here today. Notice what Paul says about those who are in Christ. He says, in Christ, he has enabled you. He has enabled you. The, the um, ESV uses the word qualified, which I, I, I like that word. The Greek is the connotation of, of authorized. He's enabled you. He's qualified you to share in the saints' inheritance. Right? So this is the idea that in Christ, what we were previously unfit for, God has made us fit for. In fact, Paul uses this exact same word when he talks about his role as, an, as being called to be an apostle. He's like, what I was totally unfit for, to- totally unqualified, in Jesus, he has qualified me. Every uh, Good Friday over the last few years, um, my team group, the guys that gather on Friday morning, one of the guys in the group will typically send this short little video. It's um, by Alistair Begg who's a pastor out of Ohio, and, and he's Scottish, so he's got that accent thing going. That's an unfair advantage to all pastors. And, <laughs> and he, um, he has this little phrase that he uses called the man, uh, the man on the middle cross, and he's, he, he just sort of tells a story. I think it, actually, when you watch the whole sermon, I think it's spontaneous. Like, I think it just kind of comes to his brain, and he's reflecting on the position of the criminal who died alongside of Jesus, and Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And Alistair Begg just kind of begins to imagine what it looks like when this criminal sort of, this guy who has just died on a cross because he was guilty of, of some pretty horrific things and had said some pretty horrible things. He's cursing everybody out. He's, he's, he's angry. But then he recognizes, I'm guilty. This guy isn't. And Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. And he arrives in paradise and and Beg imagines some of the angels, I'm not exactly sure this is how it works, but just work with me here, like kind of being like, uh, this doesn't seem right, like flipping through the manual and getting a supervisor and being like, how? and they eventually say like, how, how did you get here? And the, the guy on this says, I have no idea. I have no, I have no idea how I got here. It's just the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross, he's, He said, today I'm going to be with you in paradise. That's the idea of Jesus rescuing us or qualifying us, enabling us. That the answer to that question of why should I let you into my presence, the presence of a holy God, there's no, any answer that starts with I, right, misconstrues the gospel. It's all about him. It's all about what Jesus has done. That the man on the middle cross said I could come. Secondly, he says that you've been rescued, that, that those are in Christ, that he has rescued you. He's rescued you from the dominion of darkness. We have this inheritance in the light. There's, there's this transfer, uh, transfer of authority that takes place. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world. According to the ruler of the power of the ear, the spirit now working in the disobedience, this is who you were. This was your authority. This is what you were. This was the governing operating system of your life. But in Christ, 
He's rescued you out from the authority of this world. Elsewhere, uh, Paul refers to it as slavery. Right? This, is, this, is, this is the new Exodus story. We have been rescued. And then Paul says, thirdly, that we have been transferred. We've been transferred into the kingdom of the son he loves. God in Jesus is He's created this multi-ethnic, multi-generational man and woman, Jew and Gentile, slave and free community kingdom. And he's transferred us out of the kingdom of this world, the dominion of darkness, into the kingdom of the son that he loves. This, Paul says, Paul says, this is your status in Christ. If you are in Christ today, you are enabled or qualified, you are rescued, and you are transferred. Praise be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and he says, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's a great way to start a letter. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together and to be a church and to look at your word. We thank you for Paul's heart and focus to just focus his church on, on the mission of, of what you have done, on who you are, and the recognition that there is nothing else to add to it. So Jesus, where we have ever added to your mission and to your purpose, Lord, forgive us. We want to make it all about you. Be central in everything that we do. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. I talked too long this morning, so would you stand and I'll go ahead and do the benediction. And I'll apologize to the worship team later. Um, thank you for, for being here with us. If, you, uh, if we can pray with you this morning, always know that we're available to do that. The prayer team, myself. Are up here if again like when we talk about the gospel if you ever have questions about that or how do i put my faith in jesus again it's it's it is not magical it is is i'd be happy to pray with you and to just um talk you through that if if you'd like uh if you came prepared to give again we think about abby's story and people coming around here and and community that is possible because of of the generosity of the body of christ and we are so grateful uh, for all the ways that you partner in the work that God has called us to here. Now receive this morning's benediction. Go now in the name of Jesus Christ. May he be the center of our lives and the center of this church. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.